I'm sorry, Paul. This is all wrong. What? You'll have to do it over again. It's not worthy of you. Throw it all out. Except for that part of naming the gravedigger after me. You can leave that in. I really value your criticism. But maybe we're being a little hasty here. Paul, what you've written just isn't fair. Not fair. That's right. When I was growing up in Bakersfield, my favorite thing in all the world was to go to the movies on Saturday afternoons for the chapter plays. Cliffhangers. I know that, Mr. Man. They also call them serials. I'm not stupid, you know. Anyway, my favorite was Rocket Man. And once it was a no-breaks chapter. And the bad guy stuck him in a car on a mountain road and knocked him out and welded the door shut and tore out the brakes and started him to his death. And he woke up and tried to steer and tried to get out, but the car went off a cliff before he could escape. And it crashed and burned, and I was so upset and excited. And the next week, you better believe I was first in line. And they always start with the end of the last week. And there was Rocket Man trying to get out. And here comes the cliff. And just before the car went off the cliff, he jumped free. And all the kids cheered. But I didn't cheer. I stood right up and started shouting, This isn't what happened last week! Have you all got amnesia? They just cheated us! This isn't fair! He didn't get out of the cock-a-doody car! Oscar Wilde once wrote, Each man kills the thing he loves. The coward does it with a kiss. The brave man does it with a sword. In this episode of Right Good, we're going to talk about the ultimate kiss of death for any creative medium, fandom. With me today is Tim Heiderich, author of Misunderstanding Comics and co-host of Have You Seen This, a podcast about obscure and misbegotten visual media. Hi, Tim. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and what fandom means to you. Hi. Uh, yeah, it's great to be here. I am one half of Have You Seen This? And yeah, we uh, like to dig up some gems of sort of unusual and overlooked media and uh, movies and help kind of bring them to a new audience. But yeah, I have been a fan of various uh, genre television and you know books and games and all sorts of stuff for, for years and years. So I've kind of been uh, in and out of of fandom in various forms and um yeah i think i have over the years gained some perspective on uh when fandom can kind of turn toxic versus being like a healthy social outlet so yeah i'm mm. I'm more than happy to hold forth on that topic well before we get into it why don't we start off by defining fandom now i'll start by saying that we're not contrarian jerks. We're not saying that you're bad for enjoying stuff. Um, liking things is good and normal. As, as the meme goes, we will let people enjoy things. But that's not what we mean by fandom. So what's the difference between liking a thing a lot and being in a fandom? So the example, or the way I'd define it, I guess, is making your engagement with a certain form of media a main part of your identity or a major part of your identity defining yourself by the media you consume or enjoy for example watching and enjoying doctor who is all right but when you start calling yourself a whovian that means you're participating in fandom now tim i picked you for this episode because you mentioned that you were super involved in fandom back in the day and then you sort of had a come to jesus moment would you like to talk about that yeah, 
bring it back to Misunderstanding Comics, that whole book is, you know, it's a parody of Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, and it's sort of a satire of fandom and, you know, in particular, my uh, troubled relationship with it. But in it, uh, my artist and I cover how fandom is a way for marginalized people to find a community, but uh, it can turn uh, really insular and kind of, yeah, I want to say, you know, it, it can kind of curdle into a sort of, uh, a, into obsession and divisiveness. And I think that's really missing the, the true spirit of it. The, the come to Jesus moment that you, that you mentioned, uh, I brought up in, in the episode you're on of, of Have You Seen This, which is my familiar, familiarity with the movie adaptation of the book Ready Player One, which mm. I had not read yet, but it's the, uh, the guys who do Mystery Science Theater and Rift Tracks, they did a spinoff podcast where they just lambasted that book. And right. I, yeah, and I mainlined it and yeah, partway through it, because they, you know, they make a lot of hay out of how the, the the book is basically like weaponized nostalgia, right? And that they've said like, hey, this is that thing you like, this is that other thing you like. We're just gonna put them all together until you know you choke on it, and right. yeah, and like they make a big deal out of you know like the Back to the Future DeLorean and like retro video games, and then like I'm looking around my apartment and it's like, well, there's my uh, Matchbox car of the DeLorean. There's my Lego figure of the like you know arcade player. There's my Atari Twenty Six Hundred, and then I'm like, okay, so my entire identity is a lie. That's great. Like, <laughs> there's a point where it's like, Oof. yeah, you don't know like what part of it is is you and part what part of it is this culture that you just sort of been sold and then internalized, and it supplanted whatever personality you're supposed to originally have. Right. So so yeah, so like the the, the difficulty that I have from this is that a lot of fandom, in a way, is surrendering of one's own agency uh, in the service of whatever this this thing is that you are a fan of. You no longer become an individual in your own right. You become a supporter of that thing. So, right. Because, yeah, then it's, it's the thing itself that becomes important, but I think that that is harmful to the individual's identity. And... And you can spend like a lot of you know, time and effort in becoming familiar with the the thing that you were a fan of. And I know, you know, in particular, there like I watch a lot of B movies, and I know that there are people who have like encyclopedic knowledge of various you know genres of film and and this and that. But I mean, is it better to develop an encyclopedic understanding of like other people's creative work or to make mm-hmm. your own creative work or to develop a deeper understanding of that creative work right because because a lot of it seems and i know i'm kind of starting to go a little far afield but the thing that i find distressing about fandom is that it isn't about the depth of understanding but rather yeah. the yeah it's 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 a shallow collecting kind of yeah it's like yeah. collecting factoids and toys and missing the point like um if we can bring it back to ready player one the movie the yeah. moment early on where I just felt my stomach drop with this sense of dread was um, early on, and they're they're playing this video game, and, and the way it works is when an enemy or an NPC is defeated, it sort of explodes in a shower of gold digital coins. And very briefly, it flashed upon an image of Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger who explode into a pile of gold coins. 
and I'm actually a really big fan of 80s horror. I absolutely love the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, um, mm-hmm. and and there's, I know it's not like Citizen Kane, but Wes Craven was actually saying something when he was making those movies. They're about something. They're very political. They're really thoughtful, and this just kind of turned it into a pair of images, just a pair of kind of meaningless icons to collect yeah which then exploded into money and i'm like this is kind of a symbol of how this treats the 80s it takes a lot of stuff that might be dated or or might be kind of cheesy but it was made with sincerity and it was made with a lot of love and just turns it into this surface level object to collect to make coins pour out and yeah wow that's that is a metaphor for ready player one right there just yeah it it got a little too real there bothered me yeah, and, and um, that is the thing that I feel like uh, a lot of times separates high and low art is that intentionality behind what's being made. Like that is the, right. the problem that I had with a lot of you know like two thousands horror is that it didn't seem to have any sort of message behind it. It didn't have no. any sort of notion or idea. Because yeah, I see what you're saying about you know Friday the Thirteenth or Nightmare on Elm Street. In that yeah, there's there are ideas behind what you're seeing. It isn't just this recognizable thing. But yeah, in Ready Player One, to reduce Freddy and Jason down to these iconic things and being like, hey, here's that thing that you recognize stripped of all content and then just, yeah, and then just reduce down to their money-making ability. It's like, I can't help but think you might have missed the point there. Yeah, I mean, the the worst example of it in that movie is the use of the Iron Giant as a battle mech, which is (laughs) fucking obscene. If you've seen the movie, I mean, the movie is about free will and pacifism and choosing not to be a mindless weapon of death. And by expressing love, they've turned it into a mindless instrument of death. Like, you son of a bitch. How dare you? (laughs) I was really offended, genuinely. Yeah, it's like, oh, you know, I know know you're sad that your mom died, but hey, I dug her up. Like... (laughs) I, I oh, think God. you might have missed the point. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, yeah, now you can Jesus. hang out together. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Oh, God. Yeah, so it's really, it's, you know, missing the forest for the trees to cut a long story short and to mix metaphors. Right. Yeah. And the way that it, it becomes just sort of this mass of, of signifiers in search of any, in search of a meaning. I mean, that's the sort of thing that I've yeah. been making a lot of hay of lately is um, the idea of the simulacrum. Simulacrum mm-hmm. not necessarily being a a simulation of a thing, but it is a particular kind of simulation. It is a simulation lacking an original. It is a mm. copy of a thing that no longer exists. So, in the mm. philosophically in the world of Ready Player One, it is all. You know, simulacra it is right th- it is these like dead ghosts of meaningful culture parading around as icons it is an icon mm. of a thing that no longer serves any uh has any cultural weight other than being recognizable mm. once you're aware of that you know you, you look her you look around for it more and you start to see it in more places the um my favorite example of a simulacrum is the uh, save icon in Microsoft Word. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a little diskette, which is to represent saving onto a diskette, which is not even a thing anymore. Right. Or or the phone receiver icon on cell phones. Yeah, yeah. Like even better. Hanging up, calling. I mean, 
those we're not using those. The, yeah. And it's a simulacrum on the thing that destroyed it. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> and so in that way, you know, Ready Player One is kind of the the thing that came along and killed the things that it most loved or professed yeah. to love, I guess. Yeah. In a in a horrifying way. And Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So so. Uh, just mainlining all those podcast episodes together, the guys did a, a brilliant takedown of you know, this this book and this movie to the point where, yeah, it does kind of peel back the curtain a little bit and, you know, at least made me wonder as a fan of so many other things that it's like, why am I a fan of these things? Am I a fan only of them because they're recognizable or because they're ubiquitous? Or is right. it like the last throes of the monoculture? trying to maintain a direction for for culture because if there's no one at the wheel i mean it could spin off in a thousand different directions and then we never know which way you know society is going to go culturally but if Hmm. there are forces at play that can say you know we're going to continue to milk star wars for another 40 years (laughs) then our grandchildren are going to be talking about you know luke skywalker still right so, yeah, and, and it comes down to issues. I mean, I know I, I sound like, um, geez, see, I, I don't even know I'm doing it. I know I sound like the Matrix. Hey, it, you know, <laughs> you kids remember that, but it's like, yeah, it yeah. does come down to an issue of control. Is it the individual hmm. who's going to decide how they express themselves culturally, or is it going to be, we have a very efficient and regimented system to keep everyone in line, and sure, it, it looks a lot like the real world, but isn't. So it's, uh, you can fall down the rabbit hole pretty far. Like right, that metaphor right. they use in the Matrix. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> my, I think my favorite metaphor in that movie was, buckle up, Dorothy, because Kansas is going bye-bye. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, That's Joe. good writing, man. <laughs> it's good. It's really good. It's Joey Pants, <laughs> anyway. yeah. So the thing that I find... You're troubling a lot of fan- about a lot of fandom is the uh, sublimation of the self in service of you know, whether it is becoming a sort of an encyclopedic repository of factoids or whether it is pretty much reorienting your life around this thing of which you are a fan. Yeah. Yeah, I could I could talk in particularly about like collecting, like you know because action figures and collectibles and comic-con exclusives and all that like that is you know a way that the impulse of collecting for for whatever reason whether it is just you know having a totem of things that are culturally or spiritually significant to you or whatever has been you know exploited and gamified to the point where right one is sort of led down the path of collecting things which are maybe of sentimental value but of no actual value beyond their ability to separate you from your money yeah so aka amiibos yeah uh, yeah amiibos yeah like those funko pops like those those to me are like collecting oh, cancer yeah. like oh, they yeah. there's just like if you look at them just just to look at them they are a toy with like no articulation a very restrictive design aesthetic they come in a square perfectly stackable box they're you know numbered so you can be sure that you haven't missed one of them if you want to count from one to eight hundred or however many of them they've made they are not toys to be meant to be played with they are no. yeah they are strictly meant to be collected and stacked 
they are the like end result of what collecting is supposed to be. There's this ruthless, soulless end game of collecting. So, yeah, right. So I, I, I apologize to the listeners who like Funko Pops, but you're you're being uh, taken advantage of. <laughs> right. And there's just something about how they all have the same like weird black void eyes. I'm I'm reminded of that quote from Jaws, where it's like, yeah, <laughs> a doll's eyes. Yeah, you've seen a shark. He's got black eyes, like a Funko Pop's eyes. <laughs> they have to eat that in that. It's like, yeah, that is horrifying. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they all they all fit within this particularly prescribed aesthetic, where you know, the right. uh, range of how one can express like there's so many there's such a rich variety of characters and art styles and design but then to reduce them down into hey can you make this into like a little tiny body with a big you know marshmallow shaped head and giant eyes like yeah boss i can do yeah. that but it's again yeah, it's, it's a just bummer. yeah it it just it completely uh strips away anything that made this thing unique and reduces it to this iconic commodity Right. So right, it's kind of bleak. Yeah. So it's it's uh, uh, it it really bugs me. And then yeah, to just see mountains of them at conventions because you know yeah, and people paying a lot of money for them too. Like oh yeah. man, yeah, and that you, you gotta, know they gotta do that. They push those buttons for for collectors, so yeah. it's just I don't know. I mean, say what you will about, like, Warhammer people. At least they, like, paint their figurines, you know? There's a personal touch to it. There's, like, some a certain degree of creativity in, in, in there. Like, yeah, this is a thing you bought, but you're actually painting it. You're taking time on it, and you're putting something of yourself into it. Yeah, and then that it does actually have a use beyond being a collectible. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, <sighs> say what you will about how eye-wateringly expensive... You know, Warhammer figures are. It's like, well, you know, at right. least you have a use form rather than just being like, "Hey, got that Funko Pop?" Yep, there it is. It's, yeah, it's there. It's sitting there. That's yeah. It, I, I don't know. Like, what does it do? Like, you know, whatever it does, it's doing it. It looks at me with its soulless yeah. eyes. <laughs> soulless, yeah. It's, it's dead shark's eyes, eyes. <laughs> <laughs> like a doll's eyes. <laughs> yeah, it so... judges me on the shelf. It looks at me with that weird Funko Pop glare and says. You spent your money on this. Yeah. And I mean, like, didn't we already go through Beanie Babies once? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah so. <laughs> Those are yeah. fun. Yeah. So, again, to invoke the Matrix, it's <laughs> like, you know, we've destroyed Zion before and we're, we're getting really good at it. So, uh, Funko Pops <laughs> are the second Beanie Baby wave. Until, you know, maybe it'll just be digital goods. Maybe it'll just be something that you pay money for that oh, you don't yeah. even own. It's, it's intangible. Yeah. Yeah, like you're you're buying a party hat for Second Life or something. Oh God. So. Yeah, I can absolutely see that going yeah. that way. That's upsetting. Yeah. So. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, I, I'm coming at it from a different point of view. I haven't really been involved in intense fandom so mm-hmm. much. I'm coming from it as on the opposite end. I. I write in genres that are known for having very intense fandom. So I write in sci-fi, some fantasy, some horror. That's I write some in genre fiction. Mm-hmm. And genre fiction is associated with a lot of fandom. And 
a lot of genre writers come up through fandom and they start their careers by being part of fandom, either writing about fandom or like going to cons or like starting by writing fan fiction and then writing their own fiction. And they sort of start by being a part of this fandom community. But I didn't. I've never really been in that stuff. And as a result, some kind of angry nerds have complained that, like, I'm a fake geek, so I don't deserve to be a published genre writer, which is pretty funny. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how that works. (laughs) Yeah. So it's all a little mystifying to me. Mm -hmm. It's like I'm trying to network and I'm surrounded by middle-aged people who define themselves according to their Hogwarts house. Or name their kids Anakin, <laughs> and I'm not really that. Like, why don't you just name Damien <laughs> while you're at it. Yeah, <laughs> I'd I'd rather kind of focus on making my own work than in obsessing over someone else's. And I mean, I I, I enjoy other people's work, obviously, and but I feel like you want to take some of that and synthesize it and learn from it and and make your own. But I'll occasionally worry if my focus on writing and my lack of interest in being in fandom could mean a career setback for me. Huh. You know, because it's like I'm not part of that. Also, there's another side of it, too, to being a writer, which is the thought of having fans kind of scares me a little bit. <laughs> huh. Like I keep picturing Kathy Bates in misery trying to break my legs <laughs> when I kill off a character that they like, you know, like... So there's something about that that makes me extremely nervous to the point where, like, when people... I do have fans because I'm published, and my fans so far are lovely and and normal. But there's this part of me that's so nervous of it because it's like, oh, God, if a community like that springs up around your work, like, are you responsible for this? Yeah. (laughs) At what point does kind of the the tail start wagging the dog? And is... The political end of it is a sidebar, but yeah, it's like how Trump kind of took over the Republican Party, and it's like, well, this is the way the wind blows now. Like, it's this beast that we curated and fed, and then it kind of escaped its its cage and, you know, is no longer under control of its handlers. It's, um, right. I, I think people have described it as akin to, um, like, riding the tiger, which is like, yeah, yeah. it's it, it works as long as you can hold on, but once you let go... Like you're done for, yeah, yeah. So it's it's tricky. Then, in at what point do you let your fans dictate your own creative work? Right. And and is that uh, fandom is like what what kind of weird toxic relationship is that where it's sort of like are you kept hostage by your fans? Then if you're saying right. like you know we're like we're gonna act out like look what you made me do for <laughs> for writing work that displeased me. I didn't, I didn't, right. yeah, I don't or, know or even if go. they still like your work, what if, I don't know, a critic writes something negative about your work and they like flip their shit and start sending them like horrific yeah. emails and messages and stuff? Like, are you responsible for that? Do you have to like intervene over and over again and be like, you guys, stop it. You're embarrassing <laughs> me. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> What do you do? It's this really weird thing. And I'm like, I, I'm barely an adult. I can't be responsible for other people. I'm barely a functioning human being right now. Yeah, don't make me responsible <laughs> for other people's actions. Yikes. Yeah, like, I don't dust enough. Like, I barely clean my apartment. I, I can't fucking keep other people sensible. <laughs> yeah. Well, so it's slightly terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, part of it is, uh, yeah, because that does become a thorny issue because, 
you shouldn't be expected to have to police your fans. Like they're, I hope, uh, functional adults who yeah. who can take responsibility for for their own actions. But but it does get into kind of this vague First Amendment issue about like you know what is the responsibility of the author to put that information out there in right. the first place. Right. Yeah, I personally am more you know, liberal in that view and that people should be able to write what they want to write just because you said something that yeah. maybe like rub someone the wrong way. It's like, well, it is within that person's ability to monitor their own actions. Like you can put out a lot of different ideas that, um, yeah, you, ha- you, you can only rely on the audience to treat them with the appropriate level of maturity. Right. Otherwise, like, otherwise, yeah, then you get into this sort of self-censorship cycle where it's like, just like, where does it end? Like, I'm afraid yeah, to say yeah. anything for fear of well, the repercussions. Yeah, and it's tricky because, I mean, there's that, on the one hand, like, you're an artist and you don't want to be this obnoxious, like, elementary school teacher lecturing people all the time. And mm-hmm. But on the other hand, like, you are still a person. You're still, like, a member of society and you probably have some sort of desire to not make the world shittier. yeah well i mean i'm pretty sure no artist sets out with the intention of being like yeah i'm really gonna ruin someone's day today but yeah 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 it is uh yeah i I don't unfortunately i don't really have an answer for it i don't either i don't know yeah because a lot and i think every every creative kind of draws the line differently or or most creatives if you're if you're human you're going to be horrified when somebody who's a fan of yours cites that as as inspiration to do something awful like i know stephen king published a book years ago about a school shooting or something and then some years after that a school shooter who you know carried out a shooting at his school cited that book Mm -hmm. as inspiration and stephen king ended up taking it off the market and he's like yeah i know that that guy was probably nuts and i i doubt it was because he read my book but like i i don't want this on me yeah and like I can't blame him for that. I mean, it's easy to say like, well, I'm, rationally, it's not Stephen King's fault, and that guy was bad, and you shouldn't censor yourself. But I mean, I feel like if that was me, I probably would make that same decision, just because that would fuck me up, man. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I guess it does ultimately fall to the artist to, like you say, decide where the line is, where yeah, it, it is them ultimately in control of their work, and if they say what I said stands, then. Yeah, that's one way of, of doing it. Or you could say, I don't want this work being out in the public eye, and I'm going to take it away. Yeah. And it's like, well, that works too. the the uh, The flip side of that is the the saying about you know, once you release art into the world, like it kind of no longer belongs to you. Like you can't yeah. control how people are going to react to things, and then it becomes this back and forth process, which is you know what we would otherwise call culture, right? So, yeah, in a way, like in the example of, you know, Stephen King putting this book out there about a school shooting and a school shooting resulting from it, it's, I mean, you can say that it isn't on him any more than it is on the shooter because he put this particular work out there for whatever entertainment value. It's it's what he does. And the shooter responded to it in their own way. So that isn't something that, King could have anticipated when writing it, no. and I'm sure it wasn't even his intention. It would it would yeah. be amazing to have that level of control over your audience, right? 
but it just doesn't work that way. And to say that a book is the reason that, um, you know, that someone uh, shot up a school, I think is giving the book way too much, uh, a, a disproportionate role in the in the events that transpired more than the person who actually engaged in them. Mm-hmm. Right, but then you get right. to things like the Bible. Yeah, I should probably cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I think this hits on our next topic, which is toxic fandom. Right. Why is fandom so often toxic? And I used to think that it was because, oh, these fandoms, they're full of those those darn old, those white males. Oh, those oh, white males, which are so bad. Yeah. But... YA fandom and Steven Universe fandom are overwhelmingly female, and in the later, in the latter case, uh, very queer friendly, and they're horrific. <laughs> they're very, very upsetting. Um, and also, this this is nothing new either. This isn't just a modern thing. It's easy again to blame it on like oh the internet, but. Years and years and years ago, Harlan Ellison wrote about the horrors of genre fandom in an essay he called Xenogenesis. He mentions being at a con where one fan threw a cup of barf at Alan Dean Foster. <laughs> Just threw some barf. Like, and use your Ellison words, man. mentioned he have, like, being chased into bathrooms by fans who wouldn't leave him alone. Like, he remembered yeah. walking into a bathroom and this fan would not stop at bugging him and asking him questions. And he's like dude, please leave me alone. I got to pee. And the guy just would not leave him alone. Mm. So he just, you know, he started peeing at a urinal and the guy would not leave him alone, which I understand is a very serious breach of etiquette in the men's room. Yeah, you do not want to be spoken to. While he's he's having a wee. Yeah. So Harlan just sort of turns 90 degrees to his left and just peed on the dude's shoes. Like, (laughs) it's just this bonker situation to be in. So... That is a Why? very Harlan Ellison reaction. <laughs> Why does this happen? Yeah, because yeah, because like if you're being talked to when you're at a urinal, then it's kind of like ah, here we are, just the three of us. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is not a comfortable situation to be in. It's not um, okay. Yeah, yeah, like to your point about uh, Steven Universe, which I I'm not overly familiar with it because I don't watch uh, kids cartoons. No. But but yeah, like I hear I hear plenty of stories where the show is standing in for like some major traumas going on in that viewer's life. And yeah. Yeah. And like the, again, the state of mental health in this country, like not that toxic fandom is exclusive to the U S cause it clearly isn't. Let's, we can no. go to Korea for that. Ooh. Like, yeah, that beside that being like a whole other topic, you know, you can speculate that uh, like society is being becoming, uh, you know, much more isolated with just this mm. like simulation of, of social interaction and the show is filling in that gap for for something missing in in the fans life but but ultimately that that is a is a stopgap solution like entertainment can be cathartic but it's right. like it, but it's not a solution it's it's not it's not a substitution for like therapy or actual social engagement and no. and yeah and the problem is that yeah with like with a lot of you know Steven Universe fans like it is it's filling in that gap where, where like you know, mental health care should have filled in for this person, right? And I I think that part of you know what makes fandom so toxic is its conservatism, and you know huh. I don't mean I I mean that like outside of like any kind of political notion, but I mean that it is it creates a particular you know safe space to. <laughs> 
use a, a charged <laughs> phrase um, where yeah. you know you really know what you what you're what you're going to get in it. Like people don't like it when uh, like there's there's a phrase in business that's like who moved my cheese and it, it deals with management and it, the notion is that like. You know, if you're a rat in a maze and you know where the cheese is and then you get to the end of the maze and you're like, well, where's my cheese? That is the idea that someone upset the order of things. And if you are going to fandom as a, a space um, from whatever maelstrom your life is, then to find things suddenly different can be really traumatic to the fan that goes to this to this fandom as, as a respite from whatever else is going on in their life. So, So to... So to reiterate what I'm saying about calling it conservatives is that it is, yes, antagonistic to change. It's saying I like mm. things in a particular way and I just want them to be that way forever, basically. Mm. It's saying like things are fine just the way they are. Please don't ever change or it'll ruin me. Right, right. And you do yeah. see that a lot. Like I think in response to uh, The Last Jedi, it seems like fans got the maddest at st- at parts where the film tried something new. Yeah, because you have, especially if you're using fandom to supplant your own identity or shore it up or you know, fill in the, the gaps where an authentic person would be, um, then to have things suddenly change somehow in that fandom is implicitly saying, well, something changes in you. All these things that you believe that you, all these values that you internalized, those are suddenly different now. And to say it isn't just mm. the movie that changed or the story that changed, it is you that changed against your will, no less. Because, mm. yeah, because if a person ties so much of their identity to the thing that they're a fan of, then to have that thing change, it's suddenly, it, it upsets, it can upset their worldview, in my estimation. Right. Or not even to change, but just to defy their expectations. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> oh, this pairing didn't end up together. Like, there's still so many people who are, like, pushing 40 years old who are mad that, like, Harry Potter ended up with whoever it was he ended up with in the books. And they're still mad or, or just this pairing didn't hook up, that pairing didn't hook up. And, and it gets to the point where fans will, like, send angry letters to creatives or actors or something just because they didn't see the pairing that they wanted. Yeah. And it's worrying <laughs> right yeah and and that is a manifold issue because the like one of the things that that i i think about in um story writing and a lot of the time like i'm trying to be original i'm trying to do something new i'm trying to uh you right. know be novel and provide something unexpected but if you apply that to a different um a different medium like say music no one ever got mad at a song for hitting all the notes they wanted it to hit. So in a way, mm-hmm. if, and this is you know, something to kind of mitigate, you know, anxiety about writing, which is like, if things go exactly the way you want them to, or exactly the way you, you expect them to, that can be really rewarding. It's, I don't know, for whatever reason, yet yeah, like the, the flip side is if you aren't prepared to have your expectations subverted in a meaningful way, then yeah, that can be a real problem because you're like, I just want the punchline to land the way I think all punchlines are supposed to land. Right. But just to, to shoehorn in a, a point about one of the movies that I love is No Country for Old Men. Like that movie is great. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, it's based on, you know, a book. It's great about subverting expectations because you have this whole notion about 
the hero is going to fight the villain and he's going to be victorious or right. not, depending on which way we want to go. But we are headed to an ultimate conclusion, are we not? And the movie says no. Nope. Sometimes life doesn't work <laughs> out that way. And like that is the, that's like the gut punch that you know the oh, movie man. delivers to you. J- just the notion that it's like, no, like sometimes life just doesn't go the way you plan it to. And just like that, that, that idea was you know, really in the DNA of the story, I found really rewarding. But if you aren't prepared for that, you're going to be like, well, what the hell is this? And I yeah. think that it can it can be handled really badly, like in like Star Wars movies, where or like the um, and you know it. Well, Game of Thrones ending, maybe. Yeah, Game of Thrones ending is a great example of it. I think that um, because for all the other problems about Star Wars Episode Eight, the thing that I walked away with from that movie is I didn't know how I was supposed to feel about it. It's hmm. like, what is the Again, like, what is the lesson I'm supposed to internalize from the story? Because stories are, these are are fables that we use to explain and understand our lives, like, I I would think. So Hmm. then Star Wars, it's saying, sometimes do something and believe in yourself, except for when you're wrong, and maybe someone you don't trust is someone you can, and something about love, and then, like, the, the message just gets completely muddied by the end of it to the point where you're just like what am i supposed to feel like how how am i supposed to feel about this movie so i don't know maybe it's uh uh i don't know maybe it's just you know the problems i have with my mother (laughs) (laughs) but but yeah like I, i definitely get what you're saying about you know star wars is supposed to fit a particular mold and you know episode seven and eight you're like what is the mold here that we're fitting and yeah, I mean, I guess like I kind of fall more on the like confused fan side of things because I'm like, as, mm. as a consumer of entertainment, I'm like, I don't know what this is supposed to be doing. Like, how is this, how does this work? Like, what, I'm, what am I supposed to be getting out of it? And I think that that I, was, yeah. That, I kind of felt like it's, it's not so much about the world, but it is about the rest of the Star Wars myth. And it's just kind of taking the original trilogy and sort of, breaking it apart and looking at it with sort of a more sad eye mm. of like here here was hope but this is this isn't hope anymore we're kind of this is the come down like what i thought of benicio del toro's character in it is he's han solo only here's who han solo would really be <laughs> like here's who a smuggler would really be actually he'd be a fucking asshole yeah like, he wouldn't probably won't ha- turn out to have a heart of gold. He's going to be se- truly self-serving. He's going to do what benefits him, even if that is siding with the, the space Nazis, and he's going to turn out to be an unreliable piece of shit. Like, that's kind of how I saw that movie going, is like a response to previous Star Wars with a little bit more of like a more grumpy eye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to that end, I actually kind of liked it. I kind of liked that side of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know that we're... <laughs> Yeah, th- this episode is dedicated to just repudiating fandom, but I mean, I the, the one that I do like uh, more than any of the prequels or sequels is Rogue One. I think I would trade oh, yeah. all three prequels for 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 Rogue One happily. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, just because, and I know that you know we're kind of getting beside the point here, but it's like I think that it's a movie that has you know heart, and you can really tell what the stakes are in it, and it supports the existing 
narrative of the original trilogy and yeah so so i like that but uh but yeah Mm. hey that's fandom right you just can't get away from it yeah 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 so (laughs) yeah we'll prepare for a lot of people yelling at you for liking Rogue One, I guess. I don't know. It's it's weird. Like, it, it seems to have already been forgotten. I don't know. Because, like, you see, like, the three, like, varying covers of Entertainment Weekly or something where it's like, oh, here are all right. the memorable characters from the, the prequels. And it's like, I don't remember half of these assholes. And mm-hmm. and then, you know, the ones of the uh, the original trilogy. And you're like, yeah, okay, I, I get you. And then the... Uh, sequel trilogy I, I, I did like rogue one for having the balls to kill everyone i respect that that's that's what really got me on board with it because it suddenly yeah, lent um... this uh <laughs> it, it it lent this this realism and gravity to the events of the original star wars because they're these hmm. people that are you know they they don't quite come together they you know have their problems but they see their mission through to the end they really go the distance and they fucking die for it and so all of a sudden, you know, you have this hour, hour and a half of, you know, those characters that you spent time with so that you know what the stakes are going into Star Wars. You're like, yeah, they're these people who had lives and histories and they, they were part of a, a bold, doomed mission to set in motion the events of, of uh, A New Hope. So, yeah, that it really resonates with me. Yeah, I I just kind of respect filmmakers, especially when they're making something that's perceived as a kid's movie or family movie for killing major characters. Yeah. Because it's like the thing that fans get really mad about. So I just kind of love it when they do that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I kind of love and respect it so much. Like, looking back, I kind of love the people who made, as even though it was a shitty cash grab movie, the 1980s animated transformers movie for having the balls to kill the hero <laughs> in front of children yeah. like that's amazing i'm yeah. just picturing some really grumpy writers who like went to hollywood with big dreams and ended up working on this going like you know what kids we're gonna fucking kill optimus prime fuck you yeah <laughs> welcome to the real world children go to hell life is pain <laughs> like i respect that so much well that's amazing well if i can <laughs> I don't disagree, but if I can uh, <laughs> mitigate or undercut that, they did have a new toy line to push, so... Yeah, but there were softer ways to do that. Be like, I have to go I, to yeah. an adventure in another dimension. Yeah, my home planet you know, needs me. You could have done that. They're like, no, you know what? We're going to fucking kill them. Yeah, yeah. You're, we're going to kill everybody. Yeah. Everybody dies. <laughs> you're you're going to watch... Dick, children. <laughs> you're going to watch, you know, Ratchet get shot in the face. Like, so you wake up, yes. kids. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah this one's gonna be you know just 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 ground into powder by unicron and you're gonna have to watch every frame of it yeah he dies screaming yeah <laughs> your beloved character gets swallowed by a demon yeah welcome to your teenage years kids it's only going to go downhill from here <laughs> yes yeah so, yeah, and, you know, killing characters, yeah, is a, is a bold thing, and that's what I really responded to about Rogue One. And it does get into, uh, I it was flipping through the, uh, like, some of the Channel 101 pages, and before anyone knew who Dan Harmon was, like, he was associated with that. And he has oh. his, um, as I'm sure you know, your savvy listeners know, he has this um, circular method for for writing stories, which is, 
um, you know, the character you know, going through a journey and coming back to the place where they started, you know, ultimately changed. Right. He uses that method in one case for writing features, but he says that it's basically the opposite when writing for TV in the character right. coming back to the original place and realizing the futility of change. So, yeah. And it's, uh, it's Dan Harmon. So of course it's this like unabashedly cynical take on you know, the notion of story or entertainment. Yeah. 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 But, but the, the long and short of it is that it is a story in service of the status quo, which if, if you're Dan Harmon and been writing for TV for, you know, sir, time immemorial then you understand you know you've peeked behind the curtain you know what the formula is but if you're just a viewer if you're just the tail being wagged then you experience these stories not realizing like holy shit i've been watching the same group of friends for seven years and like yeah events come and go but the status quo never changes and and that is i feel ultimately it's it, it stunts growth of the personal development in the viewer. The viewer themselves becomes you know, sort of uh, regressive because like they they are not changing. They aren't allowed to grow because the characters that they're basing you know their identity or their values on are designed not to grow purely out of the um, uh, capitalistic need to you know save money on sets by having everything take place in the same three locations. Right. Yeah. And again, this is more Dan Harmon's cynicism uh, soaking through. Right. And The Simpsons sort of pokes fun at that, too, in, in a lot of the episodes. I'll mention, like, how are we going to get over the fact that Dad and Flanders are friends? Like, uh, next week, they won't be friends anymore. I don't know. It's just yeah. going to change for some reason. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, I'll just hit the reset button. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, when The Simpsons started, Homer was my dad's age, and now I'm older than Homer. And oh, it's, God. it's like, how does that work? Right. Right, they they were teenagers in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s. Marge went to college in the 90s, I believe. Yeah. Now. And and that gets back to the biggest cultural influence that we've been already spending plenty of time on Star Wars. Like I liked Star Wars when I was a literal child. Yeah. But am I supposed to still like Star Wars now at my age? Right. Like and right. and if that is the case, does that show that I have not developed past, you know, what those stories meant. Are they timeless stories, or am I merely not moving past them? Right. So it's a, it's a, if you want to lie awake at night, just, you know, mull that over in your mind for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I guess that kind of segs into our next topic, yeah. which is, so there's something socially, spiritually, or emotionally harmful about being too involved in fandom if you're even if you're not one of those creepy reactionary fans like there are people who quote he-man in their wedding vows offbeat bride is a terrifying place and i've i've gotten into arguments with other fo- with other folks in the genre writing community about the MCU and something that i've found is that MCU fans try to defend marvel movies sort of over the top storylines by comparing them to the greek myths or to Cecil B. DeMille's biblical epics, but those were about the gods, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's something kind of fucked up to me about comparing Spider-Man to the gods. Uh, Like, have you accepted Spider-Man as your lord and savior? (laughs) 
Are you going to make a burnt offering to Spider-Man? Yeah, yeah, or like, you know, bear the mark of the beast with your, you know, Avengers tattoo on your ankle. Yeah, like there's something about that that comparison that's a little weird, like, and I'm not kidding about people who sort of quote geek stuff in, in their weddings. Like, I'm not a religious person, but to me there's something a little bit disturbing about taking out the sacred mm-hmm. and replacing it with this kind of corporate entertainment product yeah you know yeah i think (laughs) yeah like i mean i i certainly agree with you on the the aspect of uh people finding culture or spirituality in something that is ultimately just a yeah like you say a corporate product um because it isn't something that is designed to to necessarily benefit people spiritually or culturally it is uh, something that is designed to be profitable, and if people happen to respond to it, then that's a great side effect. Uh, on the flip side, like, I am, I, since, you know, becoming a really insufferable atheist in college, <laughs> as I think most people do, yeah, I start to see religion and fandom as fairly interchangeable in that one is a collection of short stories that imparts a particular point of view, and it happens to be from 4,000 or so years ago. And another one is a sci-fi show that presents a like moral quandary of that week. And the characters who you who represent particular archetypes are there to sort it out. Um, This is more in a in my personal repudiation of religion and elevation Mm -hmm. of fiction in that I think that, you know, when done for the right reasons, there is a lot of validity in that because, you know, it does elevate the like the position of a writer as you know a as a creator of culture like you are there to say you know these are the particular issues that we're dealing with these are the factors that come into play and given all these different ideas that are in flux if you were this individual and you were in this situation how would you react and the story is just saying this is how you know i think a particular character would react and this i think is the result of that this result slash fallout of whatever their decision is and i've seen that in like a lot of good tv and i've seen that in a lot of bad tv bad tv i think is that which reinforces the status quo like the idea that you aren't changed by the end of what you've seen like when you get to the end of it you're like okay i was right all along that's good it's good being right all the time like you know good entertainment even if it is still entertainment is a good opportunity for self-reflection the the difficulty is when fans expect entertainment to do the heavy lifting of spirituality when mm-hmm. you know it, it in reality it's a, a writer's room trying to keep their jobs as long as they can and you know if you gain anything spiritual from it and you know it's an unintended side effect you know it, it, it's a nice to have it's all gravy but really it's just people saying how do we how do we continue to keep people engage in our show how do we keep people watching and uh spirituality and culture are not designed as the end goal they are nice to have but the importance is to get more and more people invested in watching your show or going to your movie or buying your toys because that is the business of entertainment Mm. so and yeah, and, and the the difficulty then too is like if you write something that does become more challenging or more rarefied, it 
it hurts your bottom line and you get less content of that because it isn't as profitable and people don't want to make it. So it's, it is like the two, those two sides of entertainment are at odds in that entertainment I feel can be particularly rewarding and spiritually gratifying, but that's not what it was designed to do. Mm. So that's, that's, that's a question for the reader. How, how, (laughs) how would you solve this problem? Yeah. Yeah. Which 1980s Hasbro cartoon are you going to quote in your vows? Yeah. Which I think there's something that was like, uh, which, which my little pony character. Yeah. Yeah. It was at Comic-Con and, and some actual psych psychologists did a, like a cross-generational study of cartoon characters. Like what were the most like recognizable or familiar cartoon characters? And it was surprising in that like old, like Hanna-Barbera cartoons scored highly, which I do not see as being, yeah, culturally relevant whatsoever. But it's something about like the Flintstones is still ubiquitous. Huh. Yeah. And other things too, where it was like, it it was pretty much saying like, hey, what are the cartoons that you like? What are the cartoons you remember? And uh, unsurprisingly to me, uh, Looney Tunes rated really high. Oh, of course. Yeah, because they are, I think that they have really cemented themselves as when you think of cartoons, you think Looney Tunes. But yeah, there are like, there are Flintstones in there. Um, and then there are other things like the 80s cartoons like you mentioned. But when they're going over a list of, you know, what are the memorable uh, characters or what are the ones that you remember, there was no differentiation amongst all the different supposed archetypes from like My Little Pony or Care Bears or He-Man or G.I. Joe. They were all functionally interchangeable in the study which Hmm. gets back to your thing about which hogwarts house am i sorted into the thing is like ultimately that doesn't matter that you are a harry potter fan is your commonality Hmm. so yeah it was a really interesting result out of this out of this uh psychology survey that they had put forward about cartoons i forget what it was called it was last year so just check the program if you got one hmm yeah, so, yeah, the notion that um, there are different characters that uh, say something different about who you are is, is uh, like, technically insignificant. It's more over the kind of show that you like that is more indicative of what your interests or your values are. Hmm. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Well, that's neat. So, yeah, I learned a lot of valuable stuff at Comic-Con, and I got some... Very valuable collectors out of it. Uh, valuable and, you know, sarcastic air quotes. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Some rare Funko Pops. Yeah. <laughs> uh, funnily enough, and this, like, completely undermines any authenticity I have, um, <laughs> is I got uh, I got autographed Barb uh, Lego minifigures from Stranger Things. Now, oh, my God. Yeah, now, if you want to talk about the regressive nature of fandom, we can just dive right into Stranger Things. Yeah, it is very much a pastiche of a certain style and i mean i i love the first season because it was something new i'm like oh this is different and interesting but also familiar because you know ultimately you don't want anything too different you want something that is different ish but then when i got into watching the second season and there was a uh like there's a particular shot that was like just taken right out of et and the, the like lizard brain of me watching it was like, oh neat, it's that thing just like E.T. Then it's like, hang on, 
you've already seen E.T. Like, what does this bring yeah. to the table? And it becoming this pastiche of established tropes, then, I mean, for me, I, I kind of start to wonder, I'm like, am I being entertained or am I being pandered to? Right. Like, what is what exactly is it that I'm getting out of Stranger Things other than a recognition of things I'm already familiar with? And if that's all I'm getting out of it, well, what's the point? Right, right. I mean, E.T. E. still exists. Yeah. You could go watch that. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, is it just like me, like, you know, some regressive desire to, like, return to the womb? Like, mm-hmm. I, I want to be six again or something? Yeah. So... I, I feel like Stranger Things will advance when it stands on its own two feet of the strength of what novel notions it brings and, you know, what, like, uh, what characters it brings and, you know, what narrative ele- elements and stylistic elements it has. But the double-edged sword of that is that that isn't Stranger Things' strengths. Not at all. Yeah, it is designed to be an 80s throwback pastiche and if it moves away from that, it alienates the people who got into the show because that's what it was. Right. But if all you're doing is chasing culture that already exists and it's finite, you eventually you're going to run out of stuff to reference. Right. And it starts getting kind of desperate. Like with season three, they're going like, remember New Coke? Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. That happened? Yeah. And at which point it's like, you know, is, are you watching Stranger Things or Family Guy? Yeah. It's just, you know, comedy remember by recognition. J.C. Penny. Yeah. Hey. Remember that? Remember those characters from uh, Who's the Boss? And just like, <laughs> yes, yes, I do. I watched that show. Cool. Like, we're on the same wavelength. That's great. Yeah. But, yeah, other than that, what it, what does it bring? That's all for part one of our discussion on fandom. Be sure to join us next time in part two, when we talk about parasocial relationships. If you like what you heard, head on over to patreon.com slash writegood, that's R-I-T-E-G-U-D, and subscribe. Subscribers get exclusive bonus content and access to the Kitty Sneezes Discord, where you can request episode topics. Once we reach 20 subscribers, we will open up the Lament configuration for a special bonus episode on Clive Barker's The Hellbound Heart, the horror novella that spawned the iconic Hellraiser franchise. So join. We have such sights to show you. But until then, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with R.S. Benedict, hosted by R.S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That's R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. Kittysneezes.com in color.